What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm Melissa Lee in for Kelly Evans today, and here's what's ahead. Big banks back in the spotlight today with Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs reporting. The stock's taking off in opposite directions. Goldman seeing its biggest miss in a decade. Morgan, meantime, topping estimates. We'll break down all the headlines and look at how to position. Plus, China's growing pains from a slowing economy to a slowing population and a resurgence of COVID cases. We've got the latest and what it means for the China investing thesis. And United Airlines, J.B. Hunt and Prologis on deck to report. We've got the action, the story and the trade on all three ahead in the earnings exchange. But we begin today with the markets and Dom Chu with the numbers. Hey, Dom. All right. So, Melissa, markets were mixed early in the day, but they are pretty much in negative territory at this point right now. The Nasdaq is maybe outperforming just a little bit for that tech heavier side of things which is, by the way, still close to the flat line, maybe just up about a tenth of 1%. So just about the middle of the day's trading range. Meanwhile, the S&P has retreated from that 4,000 level down just marginally right now. But it's the Dow. That's the big story today. Close to session lows, down over a percent so far in trading. That's due in large part to the financials and the bad news first. Dow component and investment banking giant Goldman Sachs, as Melissa mentioned, is not only the biggest percentage decliner in the blue chip index, it's also the biggest point drag after its worst earnings miss since October of 2011. Now, revenues also fell shy of estimates. Goldman also set aside more money than expected to cover potentially bad loans in the future. Meanwhile, you've got shares of Morgan Stanley, which were a real bright spot today, sharply higher after the investment bank posted a beat for both profits and revenues earlier this morning, and that was thanks in part to record revenues at its wealth management business, a fee-based business that has been moving more towards over the last several years that helped offset some relative weakness in its sales and trading operations. But still, Melissa, those bits of data, an interesting story painted, not the same thing for two parts of the investment banking market. Yep. Dom, thanks so much. And come on over. Join us here at the desk. We're going to continue our conversation about the banks. Also joining us here, Anton Schutz, Menden Capital Advisors, President and CIO. Great to have everybody here on set together. Um, Anton, what is, what is the picture for the financials now that we've gotten all of them out? Well, the banks, mm-hmm. good enough. Valuations were cheap. Right. Um, and everybody was wondering. They were down. They recovered because they got cheap enough. And the regional banks are even cheaper and the smaller ones are even cheaper. So at the end of the day, that's what we're going to get. People are going to look and go, where's the value? Right. You know, are things stable? Loan losses are not a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may have peaked in terms of interest rate margins. Right. Earnings estimates went up all year last year because rates kept going up and the stocks went down. Now we may actually have the opposite. Earnings estimates may actually be dropping, not radically, because there'll be some credit and there'll be some you know, lack of margin increase. But the stocks are cheap. I mean, there are all sorts of financials that are seven, eight times earnings that are potentially takeover targets. Right. And Let's home in on Goldman Sachs, since that's the one that's really losing today. Has Goldman lost its way to an extent? I mean, with the losses associated with the consumer unit, that seemed like a detour that did not pay off. Whereas when you see Morgan Stanley, they made all these acquisitions along the way. They emphasized wealth management. They moved to fee base. And they really proved that they were planning for this sort of environment in a better fashion than Goldman. 
Well, I mean, it, it, it's really clear that also some people were wrong-footed, right? Mm-hmm. Some people on the street were short Morgan Stanley and long Goldman because of big discrepancy in book value. But look at the return on equity. Look at the return on assets, right? Substantially outperforming. And, you know, we talked about this earlier, but every decade or so, someone says, I've got a better credit mousetrap. And you know what? The underwriting credit is still, you've got to know your customers. You know, it, there's no new algorithm that actually makes it work. You look at all those fintechs out there, they're all having trouble getting funded. At the end of the day, deposits matter. And that's what banks have. They're FDIC chartered, they have deposits. Goldman doesn't have branches, doesn't have retail deposits in a big way, doesn't have core funding. And so it's more wholesale type funding, much more expensive. That's one of the interesting things about the Goldman call. I mean, David Solomon addressed it specifically during the earnings call this morning, basically talking about the pullback that they want in certain parts of the consumer market, specifically the Marcus lending side of Mm -hmm. things. They expect that book to the business to kind of tail off, just let it roll off. But what was curious later on in the call you know, Goldman is very closely associated with the Apple card, right? That right. Apple card business. And you think that they would address that in some kind of a negative way. But Solomon went out of his way to talk about how that is a long-term play and that it'll pay dividends over the longer term. So even with the consumer pullback in certain parts of the market, they're going to still keep that lending business in certain key parts. And they're certainly going to focus on the deposit-taking side of things. That's going to be a key for them. Yeah. How does that fit in, do you think, into Goldman's strategy? Well, I mean, again, if how does, back how does that... Consumer? Well, it's pairing back part of the consumer, yeah. right? Really what they're, what they're not saying is subprime consumer, right? Mm-hmm. The Apple card is not subprime. It's, it's a better tier, better credit. Look, uh, all the things we did coming out of COVID, all that stimulus made credit incredible for everybody. So there were lots of outsized profits made. Credit was better behaved than ever, even in the subprime, because everybody was flush. You know, now the consumer is starting to tap into savings, starting to tap into credit more. The only good news about the consumer is they have jobs. There's still jobs out here. And, and so that ability to pay still exists, but the subprime consumer is stressed. They still have jobs for now. I mean, yeah. I don't want to be yeah. Debbie Downer or anything, but when the Fed says, you know, unemployment will go higher, it will go higher. <laughs> so so the, the key part about that is Goldman has been the big part of the job loss story on Wall Street so far. Yeah. 3,200 jobs for the record that they say were eliminated last week as part of that kind of process of job cutting there. I, I spoke to Sharon Yashai, the CFO at Morgan Stanley. I asked her specifically whether on her side of things, they've already cut jobs. They yeah. announced them back in December. 2% or something. Right. And so they, she basically said that, of course, things can change, but they feel as though for right now, given the state of play that they see, that they feel like their job force is the right size, mm. that they feel that their cost structure is the right size. Now, nothing is set in stone, but she feels as though this is a good spot for them with the, with the, with the letting that they've had out in their jobs, which was significantly smaller, right, than Goldman Sachs's total number jobs cut. Yeah. What can we learn about the economy from what we've heard so far uh, from the bank CEOs, Anton, in terms of the environment that they will operate in and the environment that we will exist in? Sure, sure. I mean, they're all cautiously optimistic. I think Brian Moynihan is the only one who sort of said, well, a mild recession. I mean, we didn't hear the word hurricane out of Jamie this time. Right. Thank goodness, because they, that moves markets. Uh, but the reality is, is no one's seen it yet. The only place we're seeing the cracks is subprime consumer. So everybody's being cautious. You're seeing slight reserve building going out there. Obviously, subprime consumer, bigger bills like, like Goldman. But yeah, uh, the economy is still pretty good. And by the way, if the economy does get better somewhat, if the Fed starts to provide more clarity, I mean, even Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman said it on this call, he feels as though if things start to become more clear, CEOs get more clarity in what's happening, if inflation is kind of peaked, 
that all of a sudden you could start seeing deal flow come back. We're mm-hmm. talking IPOs, mergers and acquisitions, debt and equity underwriting. All, right. all of those things could be significantly higher once there's a clear macroeconomic picture. Yeah. In terms of what you like here, Anton, you like the smaller banks, though. I, I, I like valuation. Mm-hmm. I think look, regulation is going to be tough on the big guys. Right. right. We've got all of you know, the Biden administration's regulators in place. And they're going to be a little tougher. They're going to want more capital. They're going to be, you know, suing them to CFPB. We'll see what happens, right? And they go to the Supreme Court, whether that gets funded or not. But in the meantime, they're they're sharing their teeth, and they're obviously getting big settlements out of banks. Is there a geographic overlay with the kinds of banks that you like in terms of Texas is hot? So you like Texas banks? Yeah, no, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's it's almost scripted, and it's not, but... Uh, for the audience, you're absolutely spot on, right? You have better economic growth in parts of the country. So you could have a, a national recession, but you could still have growth in Texas and Florida and Tennessee. And, you know, people are leaving for lifestyle. They're leaving for taxes. Corporations are moving there, right? We've seen a lot of Wall Street move to Miami. Right. Uh, so, yeah, there's no doubt you're going to have better growth there, even if we have a recession. Okay. Anton, thank you. Dom, our thanks to you as well. And don't miss Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon live from Davos. That's tomorrow, 7.45 a.m. Eastern Time on Squawk Box. Also making headlines today, China, with the exception of 2020, China reporting its worst year for economic growth since 1976. Also seeing a multi-decade slowdown, China's population growth. All of this as the country could see a resurgence in COVID cases as it gears up for Lunar New Year celebrations this weekend. For more, let's bring in Derek Scissor, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and John Rutledge, Chief Investment Strategist at Safanad and a CNBC contributor. Uh, gentlemen, great to see you both. Um, Derek, I want to get your take on what you think is going on with the, with the Chinese consumer, because what we will anticipate most likely is that there will be a resurgence in COVID cases when people are traveling throughout the country for, for Chinese New Year and interacting with other people and family members, et cetera. And that, of course, would have an impact on GDP. Right. I think that's what you should expect. I also think that there's going to be COVID. We just talked about the U.S. being big and regions being different. That is also true with China. Um, the coastal cities may get over COVID, may, may already be past their peak, but, but inland regions where there's a lot of production and, of course, consumers, they're, they're a ways away. So the consumer boom people are expecting, I think, could happen this year. It's, the conditions are in place. But people are getting ahead of themselves. We could be talking, you know, into the second quarter before it starts. And of course, Chinese consumers are notoriously pro-saving and cautious about spending. Sure. Um, John, I, I want to ask you, the, the parallel is often made between the U.S. reopening and that sort of revenge spending way that we saw here in the Chinese consumer. Things are a little bit different. I mean, during the pandemic, the Chinese consumer didn't get the kind of stimulus checks that uh, U.S. citizens got, for instance. Right. And also going into the pandemic and through the pandemic, there was a property market implosion that is still in place. The property market is, is still down and out for the count at this point, despite you know some of the more recent efforts to revive it. And so I'm wondering how you think about the Chinese consumer boom. I put that in quotes as the country emerges from COVID. And, and will it have parallels to what we saw in the U.S.? Well, Melissa, let's, let's remember that two months ago, we were wondering whether they were ever going to get rid of zero COVID. And the uncertainty stretched far into the future. That's over now. They flipped. There's huge uh, uh, COVID crisis in China now. And uh, many more people dying than the government reports suggest. But that means you're going to have this tsunami wave. And after that, things calm down a bit. Derek's right. There are people, migrant workers especially, who've moved from the cities back to their villages, which is why the labor force reduced, which is why the unemployment rate fell. 
But uh, uh, truth is, this GDP report is better than anybody thought it was going to be. And uh, for the next two years, people looking at like five next year and maybe seven the year after. So I think this is a story that says we're going to see more demand for copper, for coal and for other commodities. And that's going to help the uh, commodity prices going forward. Yeah. Uh, Derek, how do you how do you think about the boom that we should be expecting and, and whether or not we should model it after anything that we saw elsewhere? Well, first, I should say I don't believe the current GDP report. So uh, that's one problem with uh, one difference, perhaps, between uh, among people analyzing the situation mm-hmm. in China. Um, I, I, do, I think you're right. I think the equivalent for China will be one, as, as John said, we need to get through to COVID. Uh, you know, some people say that's so, oh, it's already happening. Other people like me say it's more like April. Uh, but the second one you've already mentioned, which is we need property stability. Property is a big source of wealth in China. Bank deposits are the number one way Chinese uh, place Chinese put their money, but property is second. If you can get, you don't have to have an, a, a wild property explosion. That would be unhealthy. But if you can get consumers thinking, oh, I understand the value of my property assets, that's a condition we need for saving. I think that will occur later this year. Uh, if it doesn't, it'll occur next year. So I, I'm, you know, comparatively bullish. This year and next year should be better than 2022. I don't, I don't think I'm as bullish as John is. Uh, John, do you think the Chinese government's doing enough to revive that property sector? I mean, you know, policies like eliminating the three-line policy, for instance, is seen as, you know, potentially helping it. But should it do more in order to get that going? Or, I mean, there's a fine line, obviously, because they want to ignite the property sector once again, but they don't want it to reinflate as we saw it before. Yeah, let's remember, it's not that long ago that we had runs on Chinese banks because mm. of the property, uh, the property loans and the, and the book uh, rents. Um, uh, but I think that uh, I think that there's not that much they can do beyond what they're doing. It's a huge mess. It's a huge net worth problem. And as Derek says, if it just flattens out a little bit and stops being such a drag. But last year, those numbers were down like 30 percent, the property sector numbers. So uh, uh, so I think that going forward, you're looking at capital spending and consumer, but it's consumer good spending, which is something like the U.S. example. Uh, services spending uh, last quarter was down like 14% and good spending was up because you don't have to go anywhere to buy goods. They bring it to your house. Right. Um, you know, Derek, going back to what both of you had addressed, and that is the, the slog of COVID that China still has to get through. Uh, do you think that other parts of the world aren't necessarily thinking enough about the potential you know, for instance, supply chain snarls or factory shutdowns on the mainland that will happen because it feels like, at least for U.S. corporations, we've seen the worst. It's behind us without factoring in that another wave of of COVID in China could, you know, bring back all of those problems that we had dealt with before. Yeah, I, I do think this is an ongoing problem that people are underestimating because with zero COVID, with all of its uh, harm, and it, it did a great deal of harm, you knew, the, poly- you knew the, the, the pandemic situation pretty well. It was hard to have factories just randomly go out of business. It happened uh, temporarily, but, it, but it, was, it was rare. Now we're going to see travel bursts. We're going to see possibly uh, and very worryingly new variants. You're going to have more unevenness in Chinese production, whether they report it or not. Um, and I think so there's the, the wave now where are we going to get a supply chain disruption in the next two months from China. It's also the case that without zero COVID, we could get one next fall. Uh, These things are going to become more common for a while as China transitions from stability first to more openness. 
In your mind, Derek, is that all but certain, having more supply chain issues as China gets to this first wave in the first half of the year? Yeah, I, I think I think we're talking about details. It will happen. Where? Where is your supply located? Mm-hmm. Has it already gone through COVID? You know, what are their practices? What are their alternative suppliers if a factory shuts down? So firms should be thinking about the detail in China, given that there are going to be supply chain disruptions for most of this year. All right. Derek and John, thank you. Appreciate it. Derek Scissors, John Rutledge. And while we're talking China, we want to quickly mention a big move in Alibaba. GameStop chairman and activist investor Ryan Cohen is reportedly pushing for more stock buybacks after building a stake worth hundreds of millions of dollars in the e-commerce company. Shares are slightly lower today, down more than 60 percent from their all-time high in October 2020. But the stock has had a nice run recently, up 30 percent to start this year and doubling off its recent low, thanks in part to some bullish commentary on Wall Street in just the past week. Morgan Stanley naming Baba its top pick in Chinese tech for the first time in three years, seeing more than 70% upside to 200 bucks a share. It's currently trading at around 115. Goldman Sachs adding it to the firm's conviction list, saying it is the best way to play a rebound in the China internet sector. And the worst is behind the stock after two years of downward earnings revisions. You can read more on both these calls at cnbc.com pro. Coming up, this earnings season is just getting started. American, excuse me, United Airlines is on deck with the stock having its best month in over a decade. Is it all tailwinds from here? That is ahead. But first, one money manager says this market is nirvana for a stock picker and sees plenty of opportunities out there. We'll take a trip to the land of mispriced stocks next. As we head to break, let's get a check. Quick one here on the markets. Uh, The Dow uh, is now down 376.77. We are uh, better uh, than the the lows of the session, down 400 points or so. The exchange is back right after this. We could try to explain what it's like to get your work done on a John Deere mower, compact tractor, or Gator XUV. But to really understand the feeling, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. Earnings weighing on the Dow and the S&P today. While the Nasdaq hangs in on in positive territory, our next guest says this year could be an inverse of last year, meaning we could see a slowdown in both earnings and the economy. But stocks could actually post some pretty decent gains. Joining us now with what he is buying, Jeff Crumpleman, the chief investment strategist and head of equities with Mariner Wealth Advisors. Jeff, great to have you with us. Does this mean that the lows that we saw last year, you know, in, in October, for instance, that that actually priced in? the recession reset that so many are anticipating this year? I, I think to a large extent, that's true. I think that with the peak to trough decline of 25% and ending up the year down about 20%, that's generally uh, what happens around mild recessions, which is what folks expect to happen. And as you know, the stock market moves in advance. So in 23, when perhaps we finally do get that slowdown that everyone is expecting both in earnings and the economy, the market's going to start looking to 24 and what's happening in that period. And we think as a result, this is the time to start, you know, putting your buy list together 
and uh, really look for opportunities. There's a lot out there right now. So are you looking towards 2024 at this point? Um, is that how you're thinking about things? That 2023 is sort of, I mean, David Solomon said 2023 is still highly uncertain. Um, there's a lot of anticipation that earnings revisions will still, still be marked down, and we still don't yet fully know the impact of, of the Fed's uh, camp tightening campaign. And, and so I'm wondering how you think about 2023 when you're talking about 2024 already. Well, so, you know, I, I think in, in some of my notes I mentioned, everybody ought to read uh, in the audience an article written in the Wall Street Journal that says for your New Year's, New Year's resolution, uh, say no to negativity. And, you know, I don't want to paint the picture that you uh, were whistling by the graveyard here. But, um, yes, I, I, I can show you many years in which earnings are finally revised down and the economy is soft. And it's a wonderful stock market, which is the inverse of what happened last year. So the data is just not that terrible out there. You still have the consumer employed spending balance sheets are strong, both personal balance sheets, corporate balance sheets. And what happens is our audience reads all these awful he headlines, which absolutely are terrible. But in line with this, this thinking about, you know, move away from this negativity bias that we all have. The trend is getting better, and I would argue that going from horrible to terrible in data, and then on to bad, and then to ugly, and then not so bad, is all that needs to happen here for the market to do well. And I think that's what we're seeing. Inflation's coming in, and the fundamentals just are not that bad. So if we have a recession, it's going to be, I think, milder, and the impact less worse on earnings than folks expect. And valuations become attractive in that kind of an environment. Mm -hmm. And you do like a number of consumer discretionary names, Decker's Outdoors, Starbucks, Booking Holdings, Aptive, and Tesla. Let's let, For a minute, let's just focus in on Tesla and what they did in terms of the major price cuts. Um, the impact that we saw in terms of the legacy OEMs, negative. Uh, the impact that we saw in terms of the startup EVs, negative, because Tesla obviously is a market shareholder at this point, um, the leader. And what they say pretty much dictates the, the pricing for the industry. So was this like a, a genius move on the part of Elon Musk to cut prices so deeply, even though it, it in the near term, impacts margins, certainly, and profitability? So, you know, what I would say about Tesla is, it's, let's put this in context. It's a 1% position in our portfolio. Mm -hmm. So it's not like a big bet on Tesla. I've got all kinds of stocks in here that are both old economy, which I think is beautiful, and new economy. Um, that I think provide great entry points. So Tesla falls in that new economy kind of point. And our argue, argument is simply this. They've got 80% plus share of electrical vehicles. And the article in the Wall Street Journal today just points out the fact that uh, EVs are now 10% market share of vehicle sales, going to double that over time. They've got 80% share, and it's not just a play on, on EVs. It's charging stations, advanced driving systems that they make. And I, I, riddle me this. I, I, I would pose a question to anybody and say, if I told you and ignore the name Tesla and said, we have a company that has leading edge technology, 80% market share in a growing end market, you think you want to own that? And I would say at a 1% position, uh, that's, that's kind of a no-brainer to do. We got to go, Jeff. But I got to ask you if that's a small position. What's your biggest position? What what position do you have the most conviction in at this point? 
Well, uh, so I'd have to think about, you know, largest positions, but, um, you know, we certainly in technology, there are a number of names that, that we like, and not in the fangs. Uh, mm-hmm. In terms of large positions, sure, we're going to own Apple just because it's a right. big position in the S&P 500. But names we like are the ones that you see there now, mm-hmm. CrowdStrike, uh, Synopsys, uh, Coherent is probably my favorite name within technology right now. All right. Jeff, thank you. Good to see you. Jeff Crumpleman. Thanks. Coming up, the S&P restaurant index hitting its highest level in over a year. But in this case, a rising tide may not lift all restaurants, we'll explain. Plus, David Zervo says Jay Powell is no ru- in no rush to declare an early victory in the fight against inflation. He'll join us with what it'll take for the Fed to take its foot off the gas. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map with Goldman Sachs. No surprise, dragging the Dow. McDonald's leading the way. Caterpillar touching an all-time high. The exchange is back right after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets right now are close to the flat line. With the exception of the Dow, we're off the worst levels of the session. We are down 411 points. Right now, we're down 361. The S&P 500 uh, down by four points, just one-tenth of a percent. And the Nasdaq is holding on to its gain, up by about 17 points. Apple is higher again today after posting its first positive week since November. On the flip side, Amazon on pace to snap a six-day winning streak, its best stretch dating back to last summer. Travelers among the Dow laggards after pre-announcing catastrophe losses of $459 million driven mostly by the December winter storm. That's nearly double what analysts were expecting. The stock is on pace for its worst day since June 2020. Meantime, Disney, it's firing back at activist investor Nelson Peltz in his bid for a board seat. The company saying he has no track record in large cap media or tech and no solutions to offer for the evolving media landscape. The stock is up fractionally today and up 15 percent to start the year, making it the number one name in the Dow. And sticking with media shares of Snap, they are lower after JMP Securities downgraded the stock to a market perform, reduced its earnings estimates. The firm says time spent on the app is decreasing due to competition from Instagram's Reels and YouTube's Shorts. Meantime, restaurant stocks are starting the year with a bang. Names like Darden, Chipotle, Bloom and & Brands, and Cheesecake Factory all solidly in the green. But there are some signs of a growing divergence in the space. Pippa Stevens joins us now with more. Pippa. Hey, Melissa. Well, this all comes down to the health of the consumer. And looking forward, we could start to see outperformance from limited-service restaurants at the expense of full-service names as pinched consumers opt for cheaper options. We started to see traffic slow last year, as well as signs of trade down, reduced savings, rising credit card balances, still high gas prices and a possible recession means this could be an even bigger trend in 2023. Within this backdrop, analysts say investors need to be selective. McDonald's, Restaurant Brands International and Yum! Brands could outperform. On the flip side, full service restaurants like Darden and Brinker International could be challenged. That also includes Bloomin' Brands and Cheesecake Factory, which research firm Gordon Haskett downgraded today based on demand headwinds. City also cutting Cheesecake Factory to neutral today, citing margin pressures as well, Melissa, as the stock's recent run. Mm-hmm. Have we already seen this uh, in terms of you know commentary from, from restaurants themselves? And I'm wondering also if there's a mall component to this in terms of the worst positioned 
restaurants in the past. We've seen as consumers cut back on trips to the mall, they cut back Mm -hmm. on spending in other places. If they're not there, they're not going to go to the restaurants there either. Exactly. And we did start to hear some of this commentary last quarter from executive, notably Chipotle, by Nickel, mm. saying that while check average same-store sales still look good, a lot of that's because of that menu price increase versus foot traffic, which has started to slow. On the flip side, commodity prices have also come down. So that's been a key, uh, a key headwind for the restaurant industry that could be improved looking forward. But I think right now there were also comparable, there, there were favorable comps based on COVID headwinds. And now that we're seeing some of that pent-up demand starting to relax a little bit. As you said, maybe trips to the mall are going too slow, and then that could impact some of those more like franchise models. Right. Um, so there are a lot of factors here to watch, and the earnings kick off next week, so we'll hear more. We'll see. Pippa, thank you. Pippa Stevens. Now let's get to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Ty. Hey, Melissa, thank you very much. Here's what's happening at this hour. Another Patriot missile defense system may soon be on its way to Ukraine. This one from the Netherlands. During talks with President Biden at the White House, Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte reportedly said he intends to follow the U.S. and Germany in sending Patriot missiles to Ukraine. Police in Washington state are still looking for a man who tried to kidnap a barista through a drive-in window. The security video shows a man trying to pull the coffee shop employee into his pickup truck. He even tried to get what looks like a zip tie around her neck. When the woman was able to break free, the attacker sped off, leaving his money on the ground. And Madonna has announced dates for her next tour. The celebration tour will feature four decades of hits. It will start in July. She's publicizing the tour with a video of her playing Truth or Dare with celebrities including comedians Amy Schumer and Judge A- Judd Apatow in a nod to her 1990 film, Truth or Dare. Melissa, back to you. Four decades of hits, wow. <laughs> I feel old. Tyler, thank you. Tyler Matheson, still ahead. Wings, wheels, and deals, the key things to watch as United, J.B. Hunt, and Prologis get ready to report. Earnings Exchange is next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Earnings season is underway, and we've got some names on deck that could provide a read on consumers and the economy. It is time for earnings exchange. First up, United Airlines reporting after the bell today shares lower, but climbing more than 30 percent so far this month. We've already seen strong results from Delta and American. Um, it raised its guidance. Will United follow suit? Our own Phil LeBeau's got the story here. CNBC contributor Gina Sanchez, chief market strategist for Lido Advisors, got our trades. Um, Phil, we'll start off with you. Certainly the other airlines that have been out of the gate already, they really set the bar high here. Yep. And I think most people are expecting United to report strong results. Now, whether or not that means they beat the street remains to be seen. Remember, they raised their guidance uh, not too long ago. It was a strong fourth quarter for the entire industry. So if these are better than expected numbers, it's not going to come as a huge surprise. I think the focus is going to be on what they report for guidance for 2023. There seems to be, Melissa, and we've talked about this on Fast Money, there seems to be a bit of a disconnect between analysts who are saying, hey, further out, if there's a recession, we see perhaps a drop in demand for uh, commercial air travel. We are not hearing that from United, American, Delta. None of the airlines are seeing a drop in demand. So it'll be curious to see what they say about 2023 guidance and then what Scott Kirby tells us tonight during our exclusive interview on Fast Money after the results come out. What does he see in terms of demand They can definitely tell us about the first quarter, but further out, what does he see? I think that's going to be the real focus. You also wonder, Phil, I mean, the airline industry seems to be much better positioned than in past downturns in that what we've seen so far, American Airlines, for instance, reported revenue per available seat mile up 24 percent. So even if demand lets off a little bit, 
Um, if they're not expanding capacity tremendously, the revenue per available seat mile will still be very strong. Great pricing environment, mm -hmm. Melissa. You hit the nail on the head when you talked about the capacity constraints. That is not changing anytime soon. They would love to add more capacity, not just at United, at other airlines, a lot more than what they've already scheduled. But there are limits because the airplane makers, we're talking Boeing and Airbus, they are not up to the level of production that they had in the past. So what you're looking at right now is a very unique environment. And the question becomes, how long does this pricing environment last? Does it last all of 2023? Does it last into 2024? That's going to be one of the questions that I think people are trying to figure out when they figure out, okay, what type of a multiple am I putting on future earnings? Yeah, uh, Gina, you know, the challenge for the sector, because as we mentioned, there's a, a couple that have been out of the gate that reported strong earnings. The entire sector ran up on the back of those earnings. So at this point, Gina, you know, the positioning is not tremendous going into this set of earnings. Well, yeah, the, you've already seen that in the pricing. The pricing has been pretty aggressive with expectations that are lofty. And as Phil said, I think all eyes are going to be on the guidance. You know, what they guide for next year, for 2023, is going to matter. So they're going to have to carefully wordsmith that um, because that's what most of this pricing has been pinned on. And I agree with Phil on the disconnect between the expectations that we're going into potentially soft, uh, uh, you know, potentially a soft demand season if, in fact, we go into a recession, because the numbers that are coming out of United don't reflect that at all. And and the other thing, and you talked about it in a roundabout way, which is that margins have been um, rising. So even if they lose a little bit of that demand, you're absolutely right, Melissa, um, they will still be in a great position to continue to grow uh, profitability. Um, and uh, there are expectations that travel budgets in 2023 will get back to normal. And that still represents an upside for the entire industry, United American included. Mm -hmm. Phil, have we heard airline CEOs talk much about uh, China reopening and what sort of impact? I mean, at one point in time, um, some of these airlines, the big ones like United and Air American Airlines, had n a number of flights daily uh, direct to China. Uh, and then that, of course, all but stopped. Uh, so what sort of tailwind could that be potentially? I was just discussing it this morning with mm -hmm. one executive who said, look, we are cautiously optimistic as we will look over the next couple of months at adding back some flights. But they're not going to go back to where they were pre-pandemic uh, when, you know, China was a huge growth area. That's going to take some time, in part because China is coming out of the COVID restrictions and also in part because while corporate travel is going to increase to China, it's not going to go back to pre-pandemic levels right. immediately. A lot of things have changed in corporate America when it comes to travel to China. That's true. Phil, we'll see you later. Thank you, Phil LeBeau. And as Phil mentioned, United CEO Scott Kirby will join us tonight on Fast Money to discuss the results. That's at 5 p.m. Eastern time. You won't want to miss that. Meantime, next up, J.B. Hunt reporting before the bell tomorrow. Shares slightly lower today, down about 13 percent in the past year. As an economic bellwether, the street is keeping a close eye on shipping volumes and demand, fuel and labor costs, as well as any boost from the holiday shipping surge. Uh, Gina, what's your take on this one? So uh, you're right. J.B. Hunt is definitely um, a bellwether, not just because trucking is a bellwether for the sector, but J.B. Hunt is a bellwether for trucking. Um, and what we're seeing is that they have continued to, to show 
um, positive growth. Next year, we're expected to see further single-digit positive growth, uh, both in EPS, um, in earnings, also in profitability, and even um, as much as 11% EBITDA growth. And so that expectation is not being reflected in the pricing because there's still a lot of, of caution out there with regard to the recession. And, you know, this is this really gets to this idea that that the recession that everyone's expecting, it's not showing through in terms of trucking. And think about it. J.B. Hunt managed to grow while there was a shortage of drivers, a shortage of trailers and even a shortage of goods. Um, and yet, you know, this is a company that has still managed to um, continue to go, which tells us the demand is actually still healthy. All right, and let's move on to Prologis. Also reporting before the bell tomorrow, the nation's biggest logistics REIT is down nearly 20% in the past year's demand for warehouse space cooled following the online shopping surge during the pandemic. Uh, the street watching demand, rental growth rate, and uh, cash flow into the end of its fiscal year. Uh, Gina, you like this one? So we like this one. Lido owns this in our portfolios as well. And yes, there is a huge expectation that rental rates, which have been growing, by the way, for the last several years at over 20 percent, um, have to cool, you know, at some point. And so even though that's that's expected, um, it's still expected to be strong. Um, and I think all eyes in this earnings uh, season are going to be on their development, uh, you know, their development plans. And so as they make development starts, then that kind of sets the pace. Uh, for how much they're going to be able to, um, you know, derive rents from. And so right now, I think the expectation is that there's going to be a slowdown. That is already being priced into the stock, but we still think it's going to be continue to be um, a reasonably strong sector. All right, Gina, thanks for your takes on these earnings movers. Gina Sanchez. Still ahead, Bitcoin is up more than 21% over just the past week and with prices on the rise, the co-founders of failed hedge fund Three Arrows Capital are pitching a way to capitalize on bankruptcy claims linked to other crypto catastrophes. We got those details and whether their idea is viable, that's next. Welcome back. Bitcoin has climbed more than 28% so far this month, back above the 21,000 level for the first time since early November. And even as they navigate their own controversial bankruptcy, the co-founders of failed crypto fund Three Arrows Capital are now pitching a new distressed debt marketplace. Kate Rooney joins us now with that story. Kate, so they want to let people trade bankruptcy claims, basically. Yeah, exactly, Mel. And, and there are a lot of bankruptcy claims out there. Three Arrows is one of the companies that last year during the summer filed for bankruptcy. And this uh, hedge fund was really one of the biggest names in the space in the industry. It managed about $10 billion at one point and then became one of the biggest failures of last year. So filed for bankruptcy in July is still in the middle of its own liquidation and dragged down a lot of other big crypto companies that were counterparties for Three Arrows. Flash forward to this weekend, the founders are now trying to woo investors for their next venture. Uh, I got a pitch book sent to me over the weekend, and it outlines a crypto exchange, essentially, that they're calling GTX, so a potentially a play there on FTX. It's looking to make a marketplace out of all of these bankruptcy claims. So there are are a lot of different companies that have filed for bankruptcy this year, FTX among the biggest, with a million or so creditors. You've got Celsius, BlockFi. So they're looking to really make a market out of this. There's people that are, have claims locked up and want liquidity for other things. So it seems like a risky venture to make a sort of derivatives market out there. Uh, but they're, they're putting it on paper. They're pitching it to investors. They're looking to raise about $25 million. But the irony here that they are one of the biggest companies that went bankrupt themselves 
and liquidators at the same time have said that these guys are not cooperating with their own unwinding process. And they, uh, the two founders, Kyle Davies and Suzu, were served subpoenas over Twitter last week because the liquidator said, hey, they're not cooperating. We don't know where these guys are. They've pushed back on that. But some of the latest drama in crypto playing out, Mel. It's amazing the vitriol uh, unleashed on Twitter, at least, that I've seen towards these guys. I mean, first of all, GTX seems like a horrible name to choose, given the slim similarity to FTX. Any play on FTX seems like a bad play. <laughs> um, and the gall for them to offer creditors an equity stake in the new venture in exchange for those claims. I mean, there's so many things about this that just seem, I don't know, reek of hubris. <laughs> You're right. That, that has definitely been the feedback and the takeaway from this is that uh, these guys have not unwound their first failed company, yet they're looking to launch a derivatives product for the bankruptcies that are still unwinding. It's unclear that any investor would want to take on that risk. And they peg it at something like a $20 billion opportunity. And it's really hard to wrap your head around this idea working and not to mention regulators saying or bankruptcy courts, nonetheless, saying you know, that's fine. You can you can sell off your claims and use it as collateral for other loans. So it seems like there have if this is the case and people are interested in this idea, they do get backing uh, the idea that you would go ahead and make some of the same mistakes that, that really led to this, which are leverage derivatives <laughs> taking on too much risk. It seems like deja vu wild that that we're getting uh, this pitch book. We'll see if they have any success raising money. Yeah. Uh, Kate, thank you. Kate Rooney. Still ahead with inflation cooling only slightly over the past year, David Zervo says the Fed put is on vacation. Where he's putting money to work now. Next. With rates on the rise, there is an alternative to stocks right now. And our next guest says that with the Fed put on vacation, corporate bonds are the best way to find yield in the current environment. Joining us now, David Zervos, chief market strategist at Jefferies. David, great to have you with us. It's not just corporate bonds, but you want to go junk. You want to go high yield here because you think the reward is there. Um, you're saying double B or B high yield. And I assume that there's yeah. sort of a, a fine line here. You want to go to the riskier part as much as you can tolerate because the yields will be higher. But at the same time, you don't want to play... Um, in, in, in bonds that have any sort of risk of not being able to service their debt in, in a recessionary environment? I, I, think, I think the important point, uh, Melissa, here, and it's great to be with you, uh, and uh, I always enjoy hanging out with you, Melissa. I just wanted to point out what we're really saying is that the equity of a company is always the most dangerous part of the capital structure. That's the first loss piece. So what we're saying here is that why not go to the debt of these companies? A lot of them are you know, in, in much higher yield positions than they were a year ago because rates are higher and spreads are wider. Take a more senior position in the company and get something that looks very similar to equity-like returns, high single digits to low double digits, uh, and possible capital gains if, if rates or spreads come in. So I think that's really the story, and it's a fundamentally different position for those higher yielding bonds. And I would say this is structured credit, muni credit, corporate credit. I'm not being so particular that I'm saying you have to go to the company level, but I think there's just a lot of beaten up <clears throat> stories in credit uh, after last year. After all, this was one of the worst years uh, in decades, maybe even centuries, depending on how you look at it, for bonds. And it was definitely not in equities. We get 15 to 20% pullbacks all the time. Mm -hmm. um, are there so do you think that there are values in this part in the double B sort of B uh, high yield section? 
I, I guess what the important thing is, and I think a lot of your guests earlier today were saying the same thing. I really just don't see a lot of movement in the equity. Yeah. I think this is a year where we're just going to bounce around and torture people, go up to 4,200, go down to 3,700, maybe 4,300. You know, the Fed's going to get mean and nasty up to 4,300. They're going to sound nicer at 3,700, but not too nice. And it's just going to, it's going to be a chop fest and it's going to hurt. And you can sell vol in equities. That's probably not a terrible strategy either. But why play around in that when you've got uh, the yields that you have for a market that if it's largely unchanged, is going to pay you a coupon of 10%. And, and I just don't see the, the reason to take equity risk for me yeah, is I, if you have equity like returns and you just don't have a great story for big, like 20% returns in broad indices this year. Right. You make you make the point that that the spoos, the S&P is just going to torture us, um, you know, yeah. as the Fed is doing what it's what it's doing. And, you know, what we've seen, interestingly, is is volatility overall. The VIX has remained under 20. I mean, it's it's just it's it's gobsmacking almost how how low volatility is. And so I'm wondering what you make of that as any sort of a read um, and and whether or not there are better you know measures of volatility, because what we're seeing is volatility in, in bonds, volatility in uh, currencies much higher than in equities. Yeah. No, I, I think there have been a lot of volatility selling strategies. That was our strategy last yeah. year. We were covered call sellers all mm-hmm. year. We did it a couple times and you know managed to you know recommend to our clients a, a strategy that outperformed S&Ps pretty nicely. But I, I think you know, take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. If we were here a year ago or at the beginning of 2022, ball was pretty low back then. If you were selling the at the money spot calls and S&Ps, you were basically getting 7%. Today, if you're selling the 4,000 calls, I think you're getting close to 9 or 9.5%. So mm-hmm. you're getting a much bigger number than you were when we were back up at the highs, 4,700, 4,600. But yes, coming from this year of high volatility, it seems low, but it's been a lot lower. And it was a lot lower a, a little more than a year ago, a year and a couple of weeks ago. And then obviously the, the year started to tumble pretty quickly in 2022. Right. David, we got to go, unfortunately, but, uh, you know, I, I do want one last question. Within sure. double BB, a high yield, are there certain sectors that you think are positioned better? I, I think what you, you have to do is you have to spend time in the debt markets with qualified people that know what they're doing. That's what we do at Jefferies. It's our bread and butter. We're a high yield shop and have been for many, many years. I think you go in, you look at names, you look at stories, and you add and subtract where you see people who have, one, done their debt homework and not... Uh, done too much to be short-term, have long-term or termed out their debt. And you look at businesses that really have sort of done reasonably well through right. this period, but are just struggling to get the, the financing or the leverage that they that they need. And that's why they're in the double B and B category. So I, I think I think there's a lot of stories. I think you just go straight to J&K and HYG. You can probably add in some AAA CLOs. There's products there. There's lots of places that you can um, get high single-digit low double-digit yields, even in the ETF space, and then add some names on top of that. Um, it's a little trickier. It's not as easy sure. as pressing buttons on your uh, on your accounts, uh, your online accounts. But, you know, the, the bond world, I think, is where a lot of the opportunity will be used. David, great speaking with you. Thanks. David Zervos, Jeffries. All right, that does it for us here on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.